Thanks for listening to The Chapel Podcast. At The Chapel Church, our passion is to share the hope of Jesus to individuals, the community, and the world. Listen in as Pastor Brandon Joyner shares an encouraging and challenging message from God's Word. Tomorrow, our nation celebrates Memorial Day, Memorial Day being the remembrance of those that have given their lives for the freedom of our country. Memorial Day was originally called Decoration Day, and it was first widely observed on May 30th of 1868, and the purpose of Memorial Day, or Decoration Day, was was to commemorate the Civil War soldiers that lost their lives during the Civil War. On the first Decoration Day, 5,000 volunteers went into the Arlington Cemetery, National Cemetery, and decorated 5,000, or several, or 20,000, I should say, 20,000 Union and Confederate troops' uh, graves. That's how Memorial Day or Decoration Day started. After World War I, the nation then shifted to celebrate really the observance of all soldiers everywhere in our nation's history that gave their lives to the freedom of our country, changing the name from Decoration Day to Memorial Day. But the Civil War itself, and I'm kind of a Civil War uh, history buff, I, I, I like listening to the history, but we can all agree that the Civil War itself was the darkest moment in American history. There has been much debate on the motivations behind the Civil War. You get different answers depending on, I lived in Pennsylvania, so we got a certain set of answers versus the ones down here. But no matter the true motivation, everyone can agree that the emotion that fueled the the battle within the Civil War was slavery. Bottom line, that was the emotion behind it, no matter how you want to change it. Even though the first battle of Bull Run, and this is interesting, the first battle of the Civil War being Bull Run, Uh, Many of the spectators, the soldiers themselves, did not actually believe that they would engage in combat. If you were to look in the history books, you had uh, a group of people that lived in that particular community, went to the top of the hill overlooking the meeting between the Confederates and the Union. They actually set out blankets, had all this wine and all this food, and they literally were setting up a picnic to have a party to overlook what was going to happen. All that changed when the first fire or shot was fired. And you realize, oh my goodness, this is real. It is about to go down. And that was the first battle uh, that, uh, that kicked off the Civil War, but that was not the first event that really fueled the Civil War. If you were to trace it back just a few more years, there was actions that took place by one man. Some of you know that name, that man being John Brown. John Brown was the son or the father of 20 children, and he, was the, he grew up in a strict Calvinist home in western Ohio. When he was 12 years old, John Brown helplessly watched a 12-year-old slave boy be beaten and then left outside and wearing nothing but rags to spend the entire night in the cold. He would later write that that one particular moment was, was the time in which it transformed him into a most determined abolitionist. At an anti-slavery movement or meeting when John Brown was 37 years old, he stated before the people, he said, Here before God and the presence of these witnesses from this time, I consecrate my life to the destruction of slavery. In May of 1856, John Brown took four of his sons to find five pro-slavery settlers and take their life at Potawatomi Creek in Kansas. That event was known as the Potawatomi Creek Massacre. At that time, John Brown proclaimed before the people, I have only one short time to live, only one death to die, and I will die fighting for this cause, and there will be no peace in this land until slavery is done for. Brown dedicated the rest of his life, and eventually in 1859, Brown, along with a band of 21 men, went into the United States Armory in Harper's Ferry, Virginia, and held it hostage. 
And eventually they were taken over by the people that lived in that area. John Brown was arrested and eventually he was hanged for that one particular act of treason. Of course, multiple acts prior to that. Now, I'm not here this morning to debate whether or not his actions were justifiable, but we can all agree that John Brown changed the entire world and his actions set literally the country on fire, which eventually led into the Civil War. His statements resonate throughout the century, all because they reflect the heart of a man that desperately wanted change in his country among the people whom he desperately loved. This same type of plea is exactly what the Apostle Paul does in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Take your Bibles this morning and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 as we continue our study here in the book of 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians 4, prior to that, the first three chapters is really the, the introduction of the Apostle Paul. Beginning in chapter 4 comes the instruction portion of the Apostle Paul to this church. Now, I understand that there are some that are with us this morning that have not been a part of this series, and so just to give you a quick recap of exactly the context of this letter, this is how it starts, or the background to it. The Apostle Paul, along with the help of Silas and Timothy, founded the church in Thessalonica during the Apostle Paul's second missionary journey. Their time there was cut short. The Apostle Paul desired to be there longer. He was there for probably four or five, maybe six months. But the increasing hostility that was happening around the area forced the Apostle Paul and his missionary team to leave. Well, the Apostle Paul was greatly concerned for the church. On a couple of different times, he tried to make his way back to the church, but he, as he says here, the first part of the chapter, or first part of the book, Satan hindered them. We don't know exactly what that looked like. We just know that the Apostle Paul could not go back. But as it says here in the end of chapter 3, or the beginning, or the end of chapter 2, I should say, the Apostle Paul says that when he could no longer endure it, in other words, when he missed them so much that he could no longer stand it, they sent Timothy. Timothy could go, but the, apparently the Apostle Paul could, could not. So Timothy goes to the church in Thessalonica to check on the believers. The Apostle Paul was concerned for their faith. He believed that they may have somehow hindered in their faith or wavered in their faith, and so he sends Timothy to check on them. Timothy then comes back with a progress report regarding the church. And overall, the Apostle Paul is, is, is encouraged by the church. See, one of the things that we studied a few weeks ago with Pastor Bryce is that the church was persecuted on multiple different fronts. They were persecuted for their faith, but one of the things that the Jewish leaders did is they tried to uh, tear down their faith by convincing the people that their leader, the Apostle Paul, really didn't care for them. And that's the reason why he did not come back. And so the Apostle Paul spends the first three chapters really laying out his heart for the people. He says, I'm encouraged that you continued in the faith. I love you more than anything. I love you as a mother cherishes her newborn child. This is the care that I have for you. And he writes it all out in the first three chapters. But then as he moves into chapter four, he begins with instructions. So overall, because the report was encouragement from, the, uh, from Timothy, the Apostle Paul was encouraged. But that didn't mean the church is perfect. The church still had issues just as every church does because we're filled with imperfect people. So the Apostle Paul spends chapters 4 and 5 instructing them regarding some different areas that they struggled with when it came to their faith, which is why the Apostle Paul signals, beginning in chapter 4, the phrase of the, or really the transition with those two words, finally then. In verse 1, the phrase, finally then, is not in reference to a conclusion. It's like when a pastor says, my final point this morning, and he spends another 25 minutes, like, yeah, he tricked us. I thought he was going to be done. Why is he using that phrase, finally then? It's kind of what the Apostle Paul does here. 
He says, finally then, not to say I'm about to wrap it up, but I'm transitioning from my introduction now into the instruction aspect of this chapter. Paul acknowledges in verse 1 that the information that he's about to deliver to the church was nothing new. In verse 1, the Apostle Paul says, Finally, brethren, we urge and we exhort you in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more, just as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God. When Paul uses that phrase, just as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, he's referring to the fact that he's already delivered to them instructions previously when he planted the church. And so the information that you're about to receive, the Apostle Paul says, is nothing new to you. Well, why would the Apostle Paul repeat himself if he's already delivered these instructions? Well, he says that at the beginning of verse 1. He says, we urge and exhort the Lord Jesus that you should abound. You can circle that, abound, and then underline more and more. What's he saying here? The Apostle Paul says that, yes, you are a follower of Christ, but you should never, ever, ever relax when it comes to your spiritual growth. You should continuously strive and seek the truths of God so you can grow in your spiritual growth. And Paul, understanding that we as human beings need to be reminded, it's probably men more than women, we need to be reminded often of things, at least that's how it works in our relationship. So the Apostle Paul writes these instructions to remind them again, this is how you should behave as a follower of Christ. In efforts to clear up any assumption that what he's about to deliver or words that came directly uh, from him. Paul says in verse 2, For you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. In other words, the Apostle Paul assures them that everything that he's about to say does not come from him directly, but God and through the power of the Holy Spirit to the people through the Apostle Paul. In other words, the Apostle Paul says, Listen, God is the only one that called you to be holy. Jesus is the only one that enables you to become holy through the gift of Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit is the only one that helps you grow in your holiness. Therefore, everything that is necessary to reach your goal of holiness comes solely from God. It doesn't come from the opinion of man, because that means nothing. So the Apostle Paul says, everything I'm about to tell you is directly or, or, or it comes solely from God. So how does chapter 4 fit within the overall context of this letter? As we looked at last week, at the end of chapter 3, the Apostle Paul delivers a prayer to the church. As you remember, last week, there's three aspects to that prayer. First off, he prays that the Lord would redirect him back to the people in Thessalonica. He's desirous to see them again. He prays that. The second aspect of the prayer is that the church would grow in their love, not only for each other, but for those outside of the church. That the church would grow in their upward focus on God, and therefore that upward focus of God would relate to an outward focus of those that desperately need Christ. So they would grow in their love for each other and grow in their love for the community. But the third aspect of that prayer that we touched on briefly last week was that the church church would establish themselves, in other words, grow in their holiness. He says, I pray that you would be blameless. You can see that at the end of chapter 3. And then he moves into chapter 4 with, this is how you grow in that holiness and that pursuit of holiness. So you see in chapter 3, he has a prayer. Chapters 4 and 5 now are the instructions regarding the prayer that he has for the church. And so with that understanding now, we move into chapter 4. Again, that word holy is a, is a theme that he uses throughout this chapter. The word holy means to be set apart for honorable use. A person becomes positionally holy as salvation. Paul says in Titus chapter 3, verses 3 through 5, he says, For we ourselves were also once foolish, 
We were disobedient, we were deceived, we were serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, making it clear that it's not about works, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. What Paul does is he describes our life before Christ. It was deceitful, it was dishonest, it was, it was hateful, it was controlled by its lust, and he compares that to our life after Christ. The life after Christ is a life in which we have been regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit. You say, what does that mean? Uh, I'm not here to get into a debate between uh, dichotomy and trichotomy. Those of you that have heard that uh, phrasing before, you say, well, what does that mean? Basically, dichotomy means that the man itself is made up of two different parts, the body and then the soul and spirit being one, the body being the other. And then there's trichotomy, which believes that there's three parts to man. There's the body, there's the soul, and there's the spirit. I'm not here to get into that debate, but I'm here to focus on the fact that there is a spirit within every single man. The spirit is different than the soul. The soul is who we are. It's our, it, it, when you talk to somebody, it's, it's their personality. Like that's their soul. Their body is what you see. It's the physical aspect of that person. It's the shell. It's the flesh of that person. Then you have the spirit, the spirit aspect. The spirit is dead when we are without Christ. We were born dead spiritually. So therefore, if we pray to God before salvation, it means nothing. God does not hear it. The Bible talks about that in Isaiah, that because of our iniquities, God cannot hear our sin. Our spirit is dead. Something that is dead has no life. Therefore, you cannot communicate to it. Therefore, you cannot do anything with it because it's dead. The moment we receive Christ, the Holy Spirit comes into our lives and it regenerates, it renews, it brings back to life our spirit, giving us the ability now to communicate with God, the ability now to be illuminated by the truths of Scripture, and the ability to live forever in heaven. Our spirit has been brought back to life, also giving us the ability to overcome sin to overcome the power and the bondage of sin, which we will look at here in just a few moments. So the Apostle Paul acknowledges now that at salvation we've been placed in a position of holiness. He also knows that we are trapped in a corrupt body. Again, we'll talk about that a little bit more later on, but that's why we still sin. We are still in a corrupt body. We will not be out of that until after we die and we go to, to heaven. But since we are still trapped in a corrupt body that possesses a sinful nature, our pursuit of holiness never stops on this side of eternity. And so for this reason, Paul delivers these instructions in chapter 4 and 5. Paul addresses the first aspect of our pursuit of holiness within these first eight verses. He speaks to sanctification, but then he narrows that down to just one aspect regarding our sanctification, and that is purity purity. The Apostle Paul says in verse 3 that you should abstain from sexual immorality. What is the first aspect when it comes to this pursuit of holiness is abstaining from sexual immorality. I understand there's kids in the service here this morning, and so we will be very upfront and appropriate with this subject, but it's in the scriptures, and so we need to talk about it. The title of our message this morning is Paul's Plea for Purity. At the beginning of the message, I shared the historical account of John Brown and what made John Brown so compelling, as well as, honestly, Adolf Hitler, which we would despise in the actions that he did. But what made them so compelling was the fact that they spoke and they spoke with emotion. 
They lived everything that they said. They weren't just words. They literally dedicated their life to what they did. As you comb through this letter here in 1 Thessalonians, you see phrases such as, when we could no longer endure it. We were gentle among you just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. And phrases like, for now we live if you stand fast in the Lord. Anyone could read the first three chapters and see very quickly, hey, the Apostle Paul loves me with a great love. And he is passionate for my well-being. So therefore, after reading the first three chapters, the things that he's about to say in the final two, I need to take it to heart. Because this man truly cares about my soul and my spirit. In this pursuit of holiness, Paul begins by addressing this topic of purity. You may ask yourself, why does Paul start with that? Why couldn't he go to another aspect? Why does he begin here? Perhaps there was an issue within the church of Thessalonica. That's not likely, based upon the overall tone of the letter, that they had a tremendous issue with this. If you were to read 1 Corinthians uh, the Apostle Paul hits that pretty hard because that was a significant issue within the church of Corinth. Perhaps it was because this subject had never been addressed before by the church, but th that's probably also not the reason behind it because according to what he says in verse 1, he already talked about it. He already talked about all the things, and so what he's about to say is not new. But perhaps the reason why the Apostle Paul decides to focus on purity is due to the effects that sexual impurity has upon the sanctification of the Christian. Which brings us to the first point with us here this morning, and that is the foundation for purity. The foundation for purity. The Apostle Paul says in verse 3, For, and you can underline this if you would like, This is the will of God. Circle the word, your sanctification, and then underline that you should abstain from sexual immorality. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. What is the will of God? That you should abstain from sexual immorality. Finding the will of God has been the subject of books written after, over the past many, many years. It's been the subject of sermon series, the subject of conferences on finding the will of God. How do we as Christians find the will of God? Those of you that are Bible scholars that have been in church for quite some time, you know that there are two different categories to the will of God. You have God's written will and God's unwritten will. God's written will are commands that are contained within the scripture. This being one of them, that you would abstain from sexual immorality, and then you have God's unwritten will. God's unwritten will being the people that we are supposed to marry, what job we're supposed to take, those kind of things that are not specifically laid out in the scripture. How do we find God's unwritten will? We follow God's written will. We seek and follow God's written will. We seek his, his will by praying, following God's written will, and then God reveals to us his unwritten will. In verse 3, Paul says that this is God's will, that is our sanctification, that, it, that is not the only aspect of God's will, but an element of it. God wills that all men be saved. 1 Timothy 2, 4, God desires that all men be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. God wills sacrifice on the behalf of the Christian, Romans 12, 1. He says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is a reasonable service. God wills that we be spirit-filled and not drunk with wine, but controlled by the Spirit. He wills that we be submissive to God's leading, that we would endure suffering as a Christian and remain steadfast in Christ. So even though he focuses specifically on sanctification in verse 3, that, that, that does not mean that that is the only aspect of God's will. Rather, it highlights the importance of our sanctification. 
It is God's will that you grow in your sanctification. Say, Pastor Brandon, you've said this word like five times. What does it mean? Well, it's very similar to the term of holiness. Sanctification means simply becoming more like Christ. It is the process of becoming holy. It involves us as Christians setting aside sin and pursuing holiness. Within this context, Paul addresses that one aspect of sexual purity. Now, the foundation for this is the fact that it is part of God's will. He's not simply referring to premarital intimacy, but sexual immorality in all forms. It includes both thought as well as action. Now, you may ask yourself, why is it such a big deal with God? Like, why does he seem to harp on that particular aspect? And some people, and I, and I mean this respectfully, I'm just repeating back to you. Some people have used that as means to say that God is some kind of perverse creator because that's all he focuses on. Well, there's the reason why. The intimacy act that occurs between a man and a woman is a symbolic representation of the relationship between a Christian and the Father, or a Christian or the church and Jesus Christ. You say, how in the world, or what does that mean? If you were to go all the way back to creation, God created one man and one woman, and they were married together, and he gave them the gift of physical intimacy. He uses that to procreate the world. But that one gift of physical intimacy is the ultimate expression of love between a husband and a wife. It is a gift that God has given. Any perversion of that is a mockery of this gift of sexual intimacy because ultimately it is a mockery of our spiritual intimacy that we have between us and God. If you were to look at the Old Testament and read through all the scriptures and you would see every time God raised up a prophet to go and proclaim the truth to the Israelites, what was God or what did God command that prophet to call the Israelites? Harlots, adulterers, adulteresses. Why? Because their pursuit of another God was, was spiritual adultery and their relationship to the one true God. So when it comes to the physical intimacy aspect, any perversion of that is a tremendous deal because ultimately it is a perversion of the symbol in which God has given us to represent our relationship between us and the Father. This is why God says in Scripture that committing sexual immorality is different than other sins because it's a sin against the own body. The sin against the own body. Well, what does that mean? The body of the believer is referred to as the temple of the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Back in the Bible times, the pagans would uh, go into the temple of the false god and they would worship through immoral acts, and I'll leave it that way. That worship to those false gods expressed through their immoral acts can be translated to the spiritual realm when we participate in immoral acts because our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are not sinning, just sinning. We are sinning that actually affects our own body. If you were to think about it from a relational standpoint, from a physical standpoint, that sin in and of itself has far greater implications than just about every other sin. Not only physically, but spiritually, emotionally, relationally. It affects more than just one aspect. It is a sin against the entire body. So for God, it is a tremendous deal. And when it comes to this purity, Paul begins with this foundation, and that is, it is the will of God in your sanctification that you remain sexually pure. But then as we continue on in verses 4 through 6, Paul transitions now by reminding the people how they can, be, how can they remain 
um, physically pure. And that is through the power of the Holy Spirit, which brings us to our second point, and that is the possibility for purity. Look at verses 4 and 5. Paul says that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Now, the Apostle Paul is making an assumption here based upon facts. He commands the Christians to possess his own vessel in sanctification, therefore acting in the opposite way of the Gentiles and how they act. Why would the Christian act opposite of the Gentiles? Because the Gentiles, the Paul says it, do not know God. The assumption that the Apostle Paul is making here is the fact that Christians have some sort of advantage over the Gentiles that do not know God when it comes to remaining pure. And what is that advantage? It's what I mentioned earlier, the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit. Say, Pastor Brandon, how do you come to that conclusion based upon that text? Well, first off, we have to understand what the Apostle Paul means by that term vessel. There's two different contexts in which the Scripture uses when it comes to that term vessel, one of them being in reference to the wife. We see that in Ruth chapter 4, verse 10, and 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. And I believe I have 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7 on the screen. It says, Husbands likewise dwell with them, talking about the wife, with understanding, giving honor to the wife as the weaker vessel. Again, not a knock on ladies, but just the facts. God created them for to fulfill a specific role, and he created men to fulfill a specific role, one of them being the protector to the wife. So that is the vessel in reference to the wife. The second use of the word vessel is in reference to the body. We see this in passages like 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 21, where the apostle Paul says, therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified and useful for the master, prepared for every good work. So if you were to go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, uh, looking at verse 4, we would take that word vessel to be in reference to the body, not to the wife. One of the main reasons for that is if it was in reference to the wife, then we would say that verse only means in regards to the man. But in reality, Paul is talking about the woman and the man in remaining pure. So that word vessel there means your own body. We possess it in sanctification and in honor. In verse 5, Paul then contrasts command with the opposite party. He says the Gentiles are controlled by the word, or he, by lust. The word Gentile here is not speaking of non-Jews. It is speaking about non-Christians. This is a spiritual sense. The Apostle Paul uses this in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 18. He says, Thus I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk and the, as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart. With the comparison that Paul makes between the Christian and the non-Christian, we see the answer to remaining pure, and that is the power of the Holy Spirit. At the end of verse 5, Paul adds, like the Gentiles who do not know God. The reason why the Gentiles are controlled by the passion of their lusts is because they are under the power and the bondage of their sinful nature. It is impossible for them to overcome sin. They can overcome habits, but they cannot ultimately overcome sin because they are controlled by their flesh. 
They do not have the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, say, Pastor Brandon, how does this all work? What exactly does this mean? You can jot this in the margin of your scripture there, or the, uh, your notes or the scripture. Romans chapter 6 verse, or through chapter 8. Romans 6, 7, and 8. That particular uh, region of Romans focuses on this sanctification aspect, and it explains how we as Christians have the power to grow in Christ. We're only going to read a portion. I'm not going to take the time to read all these chapters. But in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 10, it's there on your screen. The Apostle Paul says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you know that as many of us was, were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death, therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead of the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in the newness of life. Then he says, For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has also died has been freed from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also shall live with him, knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Now, one of the reasons why we preach expositionally, we preach verse by verse, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, is so that we gain the entire context of the scripture within the context. The danger of taking portions of scripture out of context would actually bring you to a false doctrine. That happens here in Romans chapter 6. The first several verses here, people use that to support baptismal regeneration, meaning that your baptism is a means of salvation. You were baptized in Christ, and so therefore you died with Christ and you're raised again. And so the act of baptism itself goes on to help you become a follower of Christ when that is not the reality. If you were to continue on in reading this portion of scripture, he's not saying that baptism leads to salvation. He's saying that when you died, or when you received Christ, you died in your flesh. In other words, the power and the bondage of sin died with Christ. And you became new, a new creature in Christ, going back to that regeneration of the Holy Spirit. So therefore, now you are a new creature in Christ. You are no longer underneath the bondage of sin. So what does that mean? It is absolutely 100% possible for you to overcome the sinful habits through the power of the Holy Spirit. Some people actually teach, and this would be another false doctrine, that you can become to the point where you are perfect on this side of eternity. That's not the case. You won't become perfect. I wish it was, but you won't be. The Apostle Paul talks about that a little bit later on in Romans chapter 7. We are still in a corrupt fleshly body, so therefore perfection will not be achieved on this side of eternity. But... You can sin less and less and less. It's called sanctification. It is the power of the Holy Spirit. So the Apostle Paul doesn't just say in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 that you need to remain pure and good luck with it. He says you can remain pure. You can be successful in maintaining your sexual morality, your sexual purity because of the power of the Holy Spirit. Say, well, Pastor Brandon, then, if I have this power, why do I still mess up so much? How can I, and I mean this in a respectful way, how can I tap into the power to help overcome this sin? You can write this verse down. Romans chapter 6, verse 11. The Apostle Paul says, Likewise, 
you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Jesus Christ. That word reckon there means to have absolute unreserved confidence that affects a person's actions and decisions. I reckon that chair to be strong enough to hold me up. And so therefore, I'm going to go and sit down in that chair. So what the Apostle Paul says, that if you reckon yourself to be dead and in sin, in other words, as a Christian, believe the fact that you have the power of the Holy Spirit, so therefore the sin no longer has control over you. Believe that and act upon it. He says in Romans chapter 12, or 6, uh, verses 12 through 14, he says, Therefore then, as you reckon yourself, do not let sin resign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in the lust thereof. Do not present your bodies as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present your bodies to God as being alive from the dead, your members as instruments of righteousness to God, for sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace." So what is he saying here? You have the power over sin, so therefore take your body and present it before the Lord so that he can use it as instruments of righteousness. And one of the ways that we do that is the fact that you're sitting in church here this morning. I set aside other parts of my schedule to come, and I'm going to yield my will over to the teaching and the nourishment of God's word, and I'm going to continue with that teaching all throughout the week by jumping into God's word. I'm going to set aside things that would cause me to sin, and you know what they are, and you know what your temptations are. So you set up safeguards, and we can go into a whole other discussion about sexual purity and with the safeguards that you can set up. One of the things that I've done for my family is that if there's a lady that is, uh, that is, that is here or, or at the church that's you know, similar that I'm not married to and that I'm not related to or in the car. I, I don't go in the car with them or I'm not in the same room or the same area alone with them. I, it's not that I necessarily think I'm going to fall, but I'm not going to give myself the benefit of the doubt necessarily. But also it protects my testimony as well. So you set up safeguards. Some people would say that you're crazy in that safeguard, but I'd rather them think that I'm crazy and being safe than to dabble on the other end. So we set up safeguards. That is yielding yourself over to the righteousness of God as instruments to be used in the righteousness of God and putting away the sin. And so we have here, bottom line, Romans chapter 7, verses 15 through 19. We won't take the time to read it, but the Apostle Paul, he's struggling back and forth. He's saying, the things I want to do, I don't do. And the things I don't want to do, I do. And he's saying that, yes, I'm a follower of Christ. The Apostle Paul is like the Christian of all Christians, if you could say that. He says, I still struggle. And the reason why, it's because my flesh is overcoming my spirit. Whatever you feed is going to win in the battle. Whatever you feed more will win in the battle. If I was to have two dogs, they were both the same breed, and I fed the one and I starved the other, and I said, good luck, go fight, who's gonna win? It's the dog that I feed more. If you feed your flesh more and you starve your spirit, who's going to win in that temptation? Your flesh is. But if you were to starve your flesh by, again, setting up those safeguards, I'm not going to go down there and you feed your spirit and say, I'm going to get involved in church. I'm going to read God's word on my own. I'm going to fill my mind with things that are pure and true and just and lovely. Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. You are going to feed your spirit. Your spirit will help overcome that sin. And so we see there the, uh, the possibility for purity. But number three, we see, and this is the last point here, the motivation for purity. 
He says, I'm going to give you the, the foundation, and it's the God's will that you remain pure, the possibility you have the power of the Holy Spirit to, uh, to remain pure. Here's the motivation. Verses 6 through 8, the Apostle Paul gives four different types of motivations. Number one, or letter A, the Apostle Paul says that impurity or has great social implications. Impurity brings negative social implications. The Apostle Paul says in verse 6 that no one should take advantage of or defraud his brother in this matter. Paul is urging the believers to avoid taking advantage of each other in sexual matters. To participate in immorality would not only be a moral failure, it would disrupt the community of believers as well as the reputation of the believers within the society. He says, you must remain pure. You think about all the allegations of pastors, right? You don't necessarily hear about their anger issue, and I'm not belittling that. What do you hear about? It's the moral failures. It's the falls. The Apostle Paul says there are great negative social implications, but number two, not only do we are motivated through that, number two, we must understand that God punishes the disobedient. I mean, here's the facts. Verse 6, because the Lord is the avenger, avenger of all such, as we have forewarned you and testified. In other words, we as Christians are separated from the ultimate punishment, which is hell, but we're still chastened here on this side of eternity when we decide to follow the ways of the flesh. This should be a great motivation for us to remain pure. Why does God punish the disobedient? Well, number three, because God called us to be holy. God called us to holiness. Look at verse 7. It says, for God did not call us to uncleanness, but to holiness. The reason why God chastens the Christian is because the Christian is not living up to the calling in which God has designed for it to do. It's like what we do with our kids. Our kids, we have a dream and a vision for our kids, and that is to be the best student that they possibly can, to be the best kid that they possibly can. And so when they don't meet that goal, when we know they can, we push them. In various different ways, consequences, taking away things, motivating things, because we know they can do better. And so therefore, when they don't meet that goal, we lovingly help them by taking things away. That's why God chastens the Christian. When we are walking with the Lord and we are, and it's not because, it's not because God is a mean, horrible, revengeful God. It's not that. It's because God knows that our ultimate good is our holiness. He's created us to be more like Christ. Life will be easier as we seek God's will and get rid of sin. But if we were to fall, yes, God is gracious, but there is consequences to that. And finally, here's, here's the, the motivation, and I, and I really believe that if we none of the other ones hit our heart, this should really hit our heart. Letter D, to reject purity is to ultimately reject God. Look at verse 8. He says, therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God who also has given us his spirit. Paul is reminding us that the gift of the Holy Spirit is a two-edged sword. We have the power to overcome sin. We have the gift of eternal life, but also at the same time to disobey is to refuse God himself. There was an older lady, a church member one time. She criticized her pastor because he was preaching against sin in the lives of Christians. She said, after all, sin in the life of a believer is different from sin in the lives of the unsaved people. Yes, replied the pastor, it's worse. Although we receive the grace of God, as Christians, we are sinning against the very God, holy God himself. 
Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 through 8 says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap life everlasting. So what should be our motivation? All of those things, of course, but ultimately, because God and his grace saved us. So therefore, we should never want to do anything that would disappoint him because of the grace that has been bestowed upon us. Robert Gold Shaw, I have a picture of him, was an American soldier in the Union Army during the American Civil War. Born in a prominent abolitionist family, he accepted the command of the first all-black regiment in the Northeast and encouraged the men to refuse their pay until it was equal to the white troops' wage. At the Second Battle of Fort Wagner, Shaw was killed while leading his men to the Confederate-held fort. Although they were overwhelmed and driven back, Shaw's leadership passed into legend with a unit that inspired tens of thousands more African Americans to list for the Union and contribute to his ultimate victory. Why did they want to join? Why did they want to serve? Because they saw the love of this one man who literally gave his life for their freedom. Why as Christians should we love and serve God? It's not because we believe that God's going to punish us. That's, that's a, that's a um, shallow view of God. It is because we are motivated out of the love in which God has bestowed upon us through his son, Jesus Christ. And so therefore, we serve because we love him and we're thankful for the grace that he has given us.